want you for a second to think about the last time you presented to your staff. Maybe that was in Zoom because a lot of schools are in a virtual environment that could have been face-to-face if you are fortunate enough to still be meeting uh, in person. So do you have it? Do you have the topic in the last time you presented? Now, a second question to reflect on. Think about how much preparation, how much rehearsal and practice did you put into that given talk? I am willing to bet that the majority of ruckus makers listening, even though you are my people and I love you with capital L-O-V-E, like I'm shouting, I'm guessing that a healthy percentage, maybe in this case unhealthy, but the majority of people probably didn't prepare and practice and rehearse as much as they could if they did even at all. And I think that's a disservice. That's a disservice to staff and faculty, right? We take for granted that they're there, that we're the boss, we have the title principal, and so people need to listen. But it's not compelling, it doesn't connect, and it's not the most effective way that you could communicate. So that is just one example of what I learned today or a connection I made with today's conversation with Gerald Leonard, a professional bassist and jazz musician. He's also author of two books and we'll have them all linked up for you in the show notes. But to Gerald, he says that practice is the performance. It's actually the performance. Uh, And we dive into that topic. He's also, like I said, a professional jazz musician. And so we talk a lot about what you learn from playing jazz, how that helps you build a better culture, and be a better leader. We also talk about why it's so important to keep music and the arts in our schools, too, and how that benefits and helps do something uh, that integrates the entire brain, right? Musical students are better academic students because of the time and practice they put into music. Last thing I'm going to say, and I, I could... I wish I had paid Gerald to say this, but he literally talks about his uh, lifetime commitment since being a kid to pay for mentorship and coaching and how that has impacted his life. And so the last thing here, obviously, I have worked with numerous school leaders from around the world at this point, way too many to count. And I would love to support you as well. And so if you've been looking, exploring, but just haven't put in the application yet to join the mastermind, I think now's the time. Maybe this was the sign you were waiting for. And so go over to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind, read all about our community and fill out the application and we'll reach out with the next steps. Hey, it's Daniel and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. And we'll be back just after a few short messages from our show sponsors. Take the next step in your professional development with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Learn from Harvard Business and Education School faculty while you collaborate with a global network of fellow school leaders. Apply now for our June 22 cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. 
Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during COVID. Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. I am excited today to speak with professional bassist Gerald J. Leonard, who offers a unique approach to accomplishing more productivity in the workplace. He is the CEO of Principles of Execution, a certified minority business enterprise, strategic project portfolio management, and culture change consulting practice with over 20 plus years experience working with large federal and state governments and multinational corporations. Past and present clients include Verizon, Center of Medicaid and Medicare, Freddie Mac, Hewlett Packard, Geico, and many more. But what brings Gerald to the show, he is the author of Workplace Jazz, How to Improvise, and Culture is the Base, Seven Steps to Creating High-Performing Teams. Uh, We're going to link those up for folks if you want to check out uh, his books in the show notes and in the chat here on Zoom. And Gerald, welcome to this show. Danny, thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Pleasure, pleasure. Uh, I could geek out on jazz all day, so I'm going to try to really refrain from asking you about like my favorite (laughs) albums and uh, this kind of thing. And um, anyways, what I want to start with is I know you had a you had a TED talk, and then you. Then you experienced a bout, a tough bout with vertigo, and all of a sudden you're in the hospital, you're out of it, right? And they're right. they're counting you out, and you still have this TED talk. Tell us that story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's been a transformational story and an event for me because um, it, it happened six weeks before the TEDx talk. Yeah, and I was at a conference that weekend. And um, one of the mornings I woke up and went to the shower and the room started spinning. Oh. Uh, long story short, I had to be, you know, uh, taken to the hospital uh, by ambulance. Uh, and I wasn't near, I was about an hour and a half away from where I was living at the time, uh, my home. And um, the only way they could stop the symptoms of the room spinning and vertigo was to give me some kind of medication. I have no idea what it was. But it was, but it allowed me to stop it. And then when they examined me over a period of time, they realized that what I had wasn't normal vertigo, and that. But if I could use a walker and show them I could walk down the hall and walk back with a walker, then they would let me go home. But I could not walk physically by myself. What, what I later discovered was that um, the vertigo bout created major issues in what's called the vestibular system. And that's your balance system. They basically wiped it out, like somebody right, you know erases a erases the chalkboard. Well, some you know my my vestibular system was erased for a period of time, 
And once they did all the testing, I had lost 86% capability in my right ear, which meant I could only, I only had 14% capability in my inner ear, uh, which is obviously, you know, like a brain injury. Um, so I spent a week in bed. I mean, once I got home, I spent a week in bed. I'm literally laying there going, what in the world? Is this the rest of my life? Literally, I had no, no clue. And I'm thinking, is this it? Am I going to be like this for the rest of my life? Um, I was a, you know, I'm an independent consultant. I have my own business. So if I don't work, I don't get paid, blah, blah, blah. And my business has changed quite a bit now. But, um, you know, I laid there and I'm thinking about my TEDx talk. And I was like, man, I got to figure out how to get back up because <laughs> I have this talk. And I was, you know, there was 240 people that auditioned and 29 of us got in. And I'm thinking, you know, this doesn't happen. You know, this is like a once in a lifetime chance to, to, to do this, you know, 15 minute talk or 12 minute talk uh, on a TED stage. And so I remembered in my talk, I talk about the neuroscience of music and I had referenced a number of articles and books. And one of them spoke about the idea that when as a musician or someone who's creative, if they have a brain injury and they start practicing or working and playing music again, the brain gets so active that it begins to repair itself. And so I laid there and I thought about that. And literally when I say I laid there, I mean, I felt like I had been hit upside the head with a baseball bat and put on the middle of a, an ocean, an ocean line with big waves. That's what it felt like. And so I went through that for the majority of the week. Um, couldn't watch TV, couldn't listen to anything. And then finally that Friday, I was able to get up and hold, hold on to the walker and make myself to my office where I keep my, my bases. There's an upright base behind me and there's a couple of electric bases back over here behind me. And I picked up my bass and I played for an hour. And so first I was like, thank God I can still play. And I, so I played for an hour, just playing random stuff and um, went back to bed. The next day I got up and I noticed I felt a little different. And so I thought, well, the only thing I did different yesterday was I played my bass. So I went back and played for a couple more hours the next day. And within a few days, I was walking downstairs, holding to the walls. And then I was actually able to walk outside and I could walk to the mailbox. And when I'm talking about walking, it was I had to consciously think like a toddler, right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot. But I kept pushing myself to walk, but I kept practicing and playing my music again. And within three weeks before I went to the ear, nose and throat doctor for the full exam, uh, I walked in unassisted. Now, I was very gated, but I walked in unassisted. And he looked at me, he goes, based on your tests and everything, he goes, what have you been doing? I said, well, I have this TEDx talk and I'm a musician. I've been playing my bass, preparing for this talk. I rewrote the talk. I wrote a song for it. And he goes, oh, you've been, you started your therapy. And literally... Within two months after the, you know, I, I didn't make it to the TEDx talk. I was able to deliver that and I was able to, you know, play the song. And in fact, I actually recorded that song and two other songs with a friend of mine who's a who's a producer and uh, uh, he's a Grammy nominated producer. And so those songs are on iTunes and one's called Vertigo, the first one. And it's a it's a it's a song that I I play at the end of the TEDx talk. And if you look, type in Gerald Jerry Leonard TEDx, you'll see the talk there. And uh, it's the story of that. And, and it was an amazing experience of watching the gift of music, the blessing that I had been given as a musician, you know, how it came back and paid dividends in my life to get me to the point where I can walk. Now, the result of that is I have a disability now called 
a vestibular neuropathy, which basically means I do still have challenges when I stand up. I have to let my my balance catch up with me. But you know, besides that, I am back to normal pretty much. But I, you know, I have those kind of constraints and things along that line. So life has changed a little bit. But you know, thank God I can walk again. And music was healing was was what healed me. And so you know, it was fact. It was after that that I wrote the book, Workplace Jazz. I had already written the culture as a base book, but that was after that that I wrote Workplace Jazz. Mm. That's such a powerful story. And thank you for bringing us uh, to that moment. And it's, it's amazing to hear how music healed you, you know? Yeah, it really is. And it's, you know, and it's funny because I did, I actually went to Dr. Daniel Amen, who like does a, a spec scan of your brain. Okay. And they identified one area of my brain and they basically said, you know, they said, well, if you weren't a musician, we would be worried that you were like, you know, hyperactive or something because they could see this one spot which dealt with practice and what that was like red hot, like it was extremely active. Mm. And but that's what's interesting is that that's also the mathematical part of your brain. Hmm. And so when I switched careers later on in life or, or, you know, like after I did my bachelor's and master's in music and I switched careers into I.T., Picking up the computer was like picking up another instrument. Was it? And learning how to like, you know, even program or write some code was like picking up another instrument because music had created this pathway for me in my brain to be able to easily digest and create that. So, you know, when it comes to schools and music and those kinds of things, I'm a big advocate of please keep, please keep music in the schools because we don't see the impact with the students learning the instrument and we hear them and it's tweaking and there's scratching and all the different sounds. But what's happened neurologically is that they're developing the, the pathway and the capability to have great scientific and mathematical minds. And it also creates something called whole brain integration. I talk about that in the book as well, where when you develop as a musician, you learn to see the big picture as well as the details at the same time. And two people who I wrote about in the article, um, I think I published it in Costco magazine, uh, Henry Ford and Winston Churchill both had whole brain integration. Henry Ford was the violinist. He was a trained violinist. In fact, he owned the largest collection of classical violins during that time, during his time. And uh, Winston Churchill was a prolific writer and a painter. He was a painter, yeah. I remember reading that about him too, so... It's unbelievable how art too, you know, just the whole brain integration. But I find when I get into those creative spaces, the big ideas that I need here for the podcast or the business, you know, and how I serve school leaders, it shows up because of that other investment into the music and art. Exactly. Yeah. So exactly. I'll do the, listen, you're the hero of the show, but I have to do a 30 second or less rant, which is, it is absolutely unjust, unfair to cut music and the arts from kids. And I'll never forget, you know, in Chicago, here I am. And they had a, they had a, an assertion that is deeply flawed saying, Hey, let's add more math. Let's add more reading to catch kids up. Right. But we're not going to change instruction. The instruction is going to stay the same. So it's either average right. or poor or, or even great. But if it was great, then we'd have better outcomes. And so what are we going to do? We're going to cut the arts. We're going to cut music. We're going to cut, PE. Uh, but the people who made those decisions, right, and where they sent their kids to schools, they had the absolute best music and art, right, and PE type experiences. And so I, I, I'll, I'll leave it there. But we need to keep those in schools because 
the whole brain in, integration, my personal experience, I was in choir, I was in, um, you know, symphonic uh, band as well, played the alto right. sax, always wanted to play tenor, not alto. <laughs> Different podcast episode, right? We could talk about that all day long. <laughs> gotcha. But it's, it's so enhanced my life. And I think, yes. like you're talking about the practice and all that kind of stuff, that turned me into a better student, a better human being, you know? So, yeah, I, I would definitely say, and I, I think I start both of my books around this, this topic, which is the impact that music has had on my life, because there's so many things I learned from growing up playing music. And it was one... Um, I had to invest in my instrument. I was the youngest of six, you know, back in the 60s. And, um, you know, mom and dad, they were providing the basics and, you know, you know, sure. from, uh, Central Florida. But if you want to do a lot of extra stuff, you know, you kind of had to go out and, you know, bring some money and, and uh, do some chores. And, and but it made you responsible. Right. Right. But by doing that, I learned the value of paying for lessons myself. Mm. So mom and dad didn't just pay for lessons and send me. I had to go find me a teacher and go pay for lessons. And I've learned the value of having coaches and people who are much further in the areas I want to go in. And I still use that to this day. I don't know if uh, I've recently done uh, an interview with Jack Canfield. And uh, he's one of my mentors. And another gentleman named Dr. Paul Schaefer. I've partnered with him in a group called Learning Strategies. And it's taken me to a whole nother level with whole brain um, development, non-conscious learning, and a lot of those things. And even when I was going through the the therapy for um, the vestibular issue, I learned about something called brain gyms. And I looked up a woman named Dr. Paul, uh, Jerry Templitz, uh, studied with him some, and um, and really started incorporating them into my life with brain gyms and tapping and energizers and things like it's basically educational kinesiology called educate and it's educational kinesiology and so even before the podcast i did some cross crawls i did some different exercises that like okay woke me up so that at four o'clock in the afternoon i would have energy and really be engaged to do the podcast and this interview because i know you know if you don't your body's you know your body's going to go now, sure. but you can use your natural, you know, the capabilities that we've been given by our creator to energize us and to create. And so things like brain gyms and educational kinesiology and music are so important for students as they're developing because it keeps them engaged and it gives them energy throughout the day so that it's not more math and more English. It's, it's being more well-rounded. And if you think about it, back in the, what, maybe in the early 1300s, 1400s, or maybe, and I'm not sure about the, the, the exact science of this, but I know at one point in education, it was more about being well-rounded. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about, you know, you had to have your math and, edu- and, and reading and language and those kinds of things, even studying Latin uh, and course. But it was also about, you know, being well-rounded when it came to the physical exercise or you know, music or crafts and, and it made you a whole person. Right. And so I think we do our, our kids a disservice if we're only focused on just the academics and we're not developing that other part of them because it literally ties the right and left brain together and mm-hmm. it gets the corpus callosum, which is the, the part in the middle that allows the communication between the left and right brain to communicate. And uh, has much such an amazing impact on, on on our lives. I've seen it in my life. 
Right. I've seen it in mine too. That's fantastic. We'll have to, I'll have to research brain gems. That's a new idea for me. So I'm sure that's going to turn into like a, you know, 48 hour <laughs> internet, <laughs> internet hole. I'll, I'll call out and it'll be Thursday, but that's okay. I, I'm going to learn some stuff along the way. So speaking of gems, I know you have this concept called acres of diamonds. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if you might share what that means to you, the acres of diamonds lesson. Yeah, so for, so for me, the Acres of Diamonds, I love the book, right? Uh, there's a book that was written about Acres of Diamonds. And it was the whole idea that um, that your greatest asset is within inside, is, mm. with, is within your current periphery. Um, you know, the story was that a gentleman went around the world looking for the, the largest diamond mine, and he lived on this farm in South Africa. And he eventually sold the farm, died, didn't find it. The person who bought it, was outside and, and on the farm in the stream. And he saw this thing shining up at him within the stream. And he goes and looks and sees that it's a small diamond. Then mm. he finds some more. And he starts like digging and realizes that it became one of the largest diamond mines. So the gentleman who owned the, the, the property initially, who went around the world looking for diamonds, didn't realize that he had the largest diamond mine in his backyard. And the whole metaphor of the story is, a lot of what we need to be who we want to be and the fact that we can even have those thoughts about our goals and dreams means that we've already been given the capability to be that kind of person. We just have to figure out ways to draw it out of ourselves. Wow. Yeah. I'm thinking that must be one of those lessons that you leveraged uh, when you were going through the vertigo and had to, you know, rehab, to get back to speak. Oh, yeah. I mean, it made, you know, that and, you know, just thinking about even like, you know, we just saw the Super Bowl and, and you know, um, uh, Odell Beckham, he, you know, he gets hurt. And, you know, you could see the pain in his face because he's like, man, not again. Because, but, but when you're going through that rehab, you have to dig deep and find something inside yourself that's bigger than the pain to overcome it. But when you come out of it and you rehab, you're a much, you're a different person. And, and, and because of that setback and overcoming it, it makes you a much better person, uh, a much different person, someone who has more capability and more uh, ability to help others and to do things that you couldn't do before. Right. So were you able to watch the halftime show? I was. It was great. I really liked but, it. Do you rank it as one of the best ever? Because listen, I'm, I'm I would, 43. I, I, mean, I grew up me, with the, all those musicians. It was the best I, ever I, for I, me. I like, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I, I like what they did. I like yeah. to see, you know, I, I like what uh, Dr. Dre and Snoop did and, the, and the, the, the concept and everything. But when it, when you look at, you know, what is it one of the best? I think <laughs> I think when Prince was playing Purple Rain, right, 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 all, you yeah. know, in the rain, yeah, yeah, and just just like just wailing away on the guitar and yeah. doing his thing, that was that to me that was the epic. I mean, yeah. it's going to be hard for anyone to beat that Super Bowl halftime show. Right, agreed, agreed. All right. Well, yeah. speaking of like Super Bowl halftime shows and all that kind of stuff, you know, obviously. Tons of practice, right, and Super yes. Bowl as well to get ready for the performance. Yeah. But I know you. I know you say that practice is actually the performance. Tell me more about that. It really is. So, so the the idea behind practice being the performance is the way we prepare in practice is how you perform. And that was. And I remember when I was doing my masters, I was uh, in Cincinnati Conservatory, which is a pretty good school for for music. 
and we'd gone, we'd actually gone to um, play a concert with University of Pennsylvania, and then we went up to New York and played at Carnegie Hall. And my teacher, who I studied bass with, his name was Frank Proto. Now, Frank, the reason why I wanted to study with Frank was Frank was a bassist. He wasn't the principal bassist for the symphony, like sitting first chair, but he was a bassist who played classical and jazz. And he wrote orchestral music. He wrote, he was the composer for the symphony. And he also wrote bass concertos for a gentleman, uh, Francois Rabath over in Paris. Um, and he would combine elements of classical and jazz in his music. And it was just amazing. So one day I, I had a lesson with him and I had a cold and I walked in and I'm playing and he stops me and literally I, he probably yelled at me for 15 minutes. And, and he was like, you know, if you're going to bring this, then, you know, we might have to discuss this of me being your teacher because when you're a professional musician, no matter how you feel, if it's time to perform, you got to bring it. And if you're practicing and even if you feel bad and you still perform, practice poorly, that's how you're going to perform. So he drove that into me and it really made me stop and think, OK, if I'm going to do this seriously and make a living at it or do whatever I'm going to do, then the practice of what I have to do has to be just as important as the performance. And then I realized just looking back at my own life, looking at professional musicians, whether you're, you know, let's say Dr. Dre, or Snoop Dogg or one of those guys are, are, are a, you know, you're the, the violinist and violist for the New York Philharmonic. You spend 95 percent of your time practicing, whether, whether by yourself or with the orchestra. And when you add up the time that they're in front of an audience actually performing, it's like five percent of the time. So if they don't, one, really master their art during the practice, as well as if they don't enjoy the process of practicing, then, you know, you're going to be miserable. And I think it's fun, it's interesting, again, going back to Super Bowl, you know, a lot of the players, you know, some players are saying they're going to retire afterwards. And it's not that they don't like the game. It's just like they they just can't, they don't want to do the practicing anymore. It's like their bodies are going, hey, I'm, my body's been getting battered for eight years or 10 years or Tom Brady, 20 years. I can't take this anymore. You know, I love performing, but it's the practice. And so they get it. They realize that, you know, for me to perform at that level on that stage, then I have to have practice at that level day in and day out, and, and really love the practicing part of it. And so I really do believe in every area of our life, whether it's writing, whether it's being a teacher, whether it's preparing, whether it's preparing for a speech or a presentation, that your practicing of that material is just as important as the performance. Absolutely. And a couple of just three quick real-world examples. You know, when I was a classroom teacher, students and I would literally practice how to enter and exit the room, turn in work, little, little small stuff, you know, but we'd make it fun, make it a game. And then the culture also, because I love them and they could tell that, right. And we had relationships, but that plus the little practicing of the, um, just how we wanted the, the classroom to run, it was a well-oiled machine. And now, you know, as, as I've written two books like you, you know, one of the things that I practice, uh, I've learned from, um, uh, somebody I consider a mentor, Ryan Holiday, but he talks about opening up the classics and 
just copying down, right? Like one of those pages to feel, yeah, to feel it come through. I do that all the time. There you go. I do that. In fact, in fact, in fact, when I wrote workplace jazz, yeah, every time I work, every time I started working, I'm so glad you said that. Every time I would start uh, getting ready to write, I would spend 30 minutes and I would like I Malcolm Gladwell's material. And I love I love some some of the guys who are like copywriters who because they write very persuasively and they write yeah, in, yeah. A, in a in a um, conversational tone. I would take their book or their letter or their material and I would sit, I would literally copy it by hand with, with headphones on in a quiet space you know, kind of taking me to like a like eight to twelve megahertz, you know, brainwave kind of state where it's a learning mindset, a meditative mindset, and just by hand write and read and let, kind of like get into the voice of that person. Then I would go start working on my book, and I noticed that when I did it, my my material became so much more conversational. Um, the I didn't have any mental blocks. Uh, because of how I structured the material, but it is it's something I still do to this day. I pra- it's called copy work, and and literally um, there's um, you can you can research that as well. And there's like a number of like really really good writers, people who became really good writers, um, develop that through copy work because you you it's like you assimilate a lot of the 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 the, the voice and the feel for writing through osmosis, right? Through just kind of taking it in through a non-conscious assimilation of the material by doing the copywriting and by physically writing it out, you're just, you know, you're kind of becoming that writer. So then when you go and start yours, you have a natural feel for what good writing is supposed to sound like or look like, right? Well, it's no different than uh, the kid on the playground, right? Copying a, a move from MJ or Kobe. You know, or- just, and, and, and quite honestly, when it comes to jazz, here's how you learn how to play jazz. Jazz is a language. Mm-hmm. So think about a toddler. You know, a toddler learns to speak English or their language that they, they learn from professionals, from their parents and from their siblings. And the parents and the siblings don't go, oh, Johnny, no, don't say it that way. You, I mean, if it's the, you know, the kid's like one and a half or two years. I mean, you're like totally constantly encouraging, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Because you're, and then pretty soon, by the time they come to school, man, they don't know, you know, now verb or any of those things, but they can, they can carry a sentence and they can put things together and they may have their dialect and, and so on and so forth, but they've learned to speak the language. And so, and they do it through imitation. Playing jazz is the same thing. You know, some of the best bass lines, a way that I've learned to play bass lines is by studying and getting transcripts of Ron Carter, you know, just you know, Steve, Steve Gilmore or, or other, you know, really uh, great upright bass players or electric bass players like Victor Wooten or Gerald Beasley or Marcus Miller and just imitating what they're doing and getting that feel and playing it over or trying to get a jazz feel, imitating Gerald Albright and some of his songs. Then when I go and start playing some of my own things, I notice that I have much more of a mature sound and it's really imitation. And in fact, that's one of my key principles is that you do is not faking it till you make it. It's it's literally learning the language. You have to learn a language, and, and jazz is a language. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that, but if we can pause here just for a moment, I have a few messages from today's show's sponsors. 
Learn how to successfully navigate change, shape your school's success, and lead your teams with Harvard Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Get world-class Harvard faculty research specifically adapted for pre-K through 12 schools. Self-paced online professional development that fits your schedule. Apply now at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. The BLBS podcast is also brought to you by TeachFX. Research shows that the more students speak in class, the more they learn and the better they perform as well. So TeachFX has helped hundreds of schools increase their student engagement by visualizing for teachers what portions of class are teacher talk versus student talk. Get a 20% discount on TeachFX by using a special code just for the Ruckus Maker Nation, teachfx.com slash BLBS. And today's show is also sponsored by Organized Binder, a program which gives students daily exposure to goal setting, reflective learning, time and task management, study strategies, organizational skills, and more. Organized Binder's color-coded system is implemented by the teacher through parallel process with students, helping them create a predictable and dependable classroom routine. You can learn more and improve your students' executive functioning at organizedbinder.com. And we are back with pro bassist Gerald Leonard, who is also the author of Workplace Jazz, How to Improvise, and Culture is the Base, Seven Steps to Creating High-Performing Teams. So, Gerald, you know, before we get to the questions, uh, last few questions I asked all my guests, uh, we were talking a lot just like how jazz is a language and things that musicians uh, naturally do. And, and I know you, you say that jazz musicians have nine things they naturally do to improve team dynamics. We, I don't think we have time to cover all nine, and, and we want people to pick up your books, too, so they can right. read about all nine ideas. But maybe if there's one or two that you'd like to riff on, we'd love to learn from you right now. Sure, sure. So one of them is improvement. And, and this, is, this is the foundational one, right? Whenever you're, you know, developing a, a, a band or, or getting musicians together, and when musicians work together, they're constantly improving. And that's the thing I fell in love with music when I was younger, and I still love music. You know, I'm almost 60 years old, I'm 59. And I still practice. I still listen to and study other musicians, one, it makes you young because it keeps you, you realize that as much as you've done and as many places you've performed, there's still way, there's still so much to learn. And it's, it's, it really is about deliberate practice. And it's not just, hey, I can play, so let me just kind of keep playing when I'm playing. It's no, if I'm going to improve, then I need to play some things that are going to push my skill set. And I may have to slow down a little bit to learn this new line or learn this new concerto or learn this new set of bass lines from, you know, different artists or their style. But by pushing myself and doing deliberate practice, I'm going to constantly see progress. So even as some, a lot of the older musicians, you know, I was thinking about uh, Kenny G just released a new album. If you listen to the album that he just released compared to his earlier songs, it's like he's a whole different person. So whatever he did during that hiatus where he went away, one thing he did do, he practiced. And you can hear it. You, you hear a maturity in his playing that's like, wow, this guy's like really grown. 
And so it's super important to grow personally. And then once you grow, and here's another key point is you have to be surrendered to support. And that's another chapter I have in my book. And I, and I, I, I was able to befriend a bass player. His name is David Dyson. He's probably one of the, one of the hottest bass players on the market as far as jazz today. He plays with Walter Beasley, Gerald Albright, Peter White, all these guys. He's, con- he's In fact, he's the music director for Pieces of a Dream. And I have a video clip in my, or a link to the video clip in my book where I, where I write about him and, and who he is because I got to meet him and we became friends and so on. And um, he was the kind of, he's the kind of person that when they was inducted into the Jazz Hall of Fame in Detroit and they're playing the concert, they played a song that he wrote, but he never took a solo. He was the, he was the music director of Pieces of a Dream. He wrote the song, and the entire time he just like laid back and playing his bass line. The saxophone player played, the guitar player played, the drummer got some. But for him, his whole thing was, I put this together, and I'm just happy to be the support mechanism. And he's really really good at it, and he's so good at it that he's literally he, he's literally working every like three, four, five times a week, he's on the road traveling. He lives in Maryland. But it's it's having that mindset of being willing to support. And so that the idea is that once you get yourself to the point where you're 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 playing pretty well, high performing teams are high performers individually, but when they come together, they first think the big picture, the performance, and then they surrender to each other to highlight and, 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 and motivate and encourage those who are kind of stepping out front paying the melody or playing a solo, and they work together. And what I realized in being a musician and a business consultant, that high-performing business teams have the same concept. They understand the same principle. They might not be able to relate it to music, but they do the same things. They really keep working on their skills, that whether it's a developer or a project manager or a business analyst or a requirements writer. They are working on those skills, but when they come together, they subject themselves to the, to the group because they, the, they want the overall performance to be pleasing to the audience, whoever that audience is. So that's just two areas that I talk about in the book. And the thing I do in, in the book is I give practicals. The ben- I talk about the benefits of these concepts, the practicals around these concepts. And then I talk about the neuroscience, like the neuroscience of support. Like there's, you know, you know, a lot of research from NIH and from other organizations from Harvard and MIT that shows that when we're supportive, we gain in ourselves more value from that. Our, it does our brains more good to do that than to always want to be out front. Same thing with same thing with practicing. We're you know we're constantly um, you know transforming our brain you know through through um, neuroplasticity and through brain development. We're constantly growing, and we can actually grow brain cells even in our sixties and seventies if we're practicing and doing different things. So it doesn't have to just stop because we've you know have, have uh, finished school. We can keep pushing ourselves. Love it. Love it. I think it's very appropriate, too, to, to highlight uh, Jesse on the team who's with us, you know, on, on the call and helping us produce the, the podcast. Because uh, just like the basis you mentioned, you know, that's Jesse on our team. He even literally said, I think it was a week or two ago, I love setting people up for success, like working from behind yes. the scenes. And yeah, encouraging like the base and the drone. Let's keep, keep yeah. in the rhythm. Keep He's the in the pocket. Going. He's in the pocket, right? Yeah. And that, that's, that's it. It's, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so we we uh, we love Jesse and thank you Jesse for everything you make possible at uh, BLBS. All right, well um, Gerald, you know I, I have two questions I love to ask all my guests, so I'd love to hit you up with those. Um, the first one is if you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message be? Value the impact that music can have in a young person's life. Because when I was in when I was in high school and in grade school, I wasn't good at English. I wasn't good at literature. I loved music. And my parents didn't punish me to say, well, you better sit and read and write. Now they had I do I did have to do those things and I did graduate and so on and so forth, but they didn't take away my music because I loved that more than I loved the other things. But it was because of loving music and what I learned from playing music and the brain development that I, I developed. I was able to later on in life, and even when I went to college, go, okay, I got to take the same love I have for music and put it towards my academics, and things change. I had, I had the ability. It was there. I had been building it. I had just been building it in the music room and, and playing with my friends, and it was fun, and I enjoyed it, but I was also building it. And so, you know, music is so important for kids to, to for schools to keep there for kids because it, it does give them the ability for the right and brain, right and left brain to work together and it develops whole brain integration and you can only develop it through music or through meditation. Years of meditation. Wow. Wow. Gerald, you're building the school from the ground up. You're not limited by any kinds of resources. The only limitation is your imagination. So how would you build your dream school and what would be the three guiding principles? Um, again, I think music would be a foundation. Arts and, and um, music would be a foundational. Also, I think another principle that would be foundational is educate or the educational kinesiology. In other words, the students should be moving throughout the day. A lot of times kids go to go to gym and that's kind of the only time they move because other times they need to sit there, be quiet, listen, blah, blah, blah. And if they have breaks throughout the day where they can get up and do these these brain gyms, these, these different movements, it basically resynchronizes the brain. And, and why that's so important, and I'd have to share this, when I was going through my vertigo situation and, and uh, disability, and I was going to therapy, what got me interested in brain gyms was the, was the, the, the small exercises they had me do to rewire my brain. And I would ask the therapist, I was like, so you're telling me if I do this little exercise for like five minutes or two minutes and looking this way and looking that way and walking and so on and so forth, that that's rewiring my brain. She goes, yes. And true to form, I did them and it rewired my brain. So imagine being in a school where throughout the day, kids are getting up between those exercises, between math and science and social studies, and they're doing brain gyms and they're doing energy exercises so that they're refreshed naturally because of the energy they already have built up in their bodies and their brains are integrated while they're going. So I think brain, that would be one. And then two, this equality, just equality. And I think realizing that, you know, we're all, we're, we, we, we've all been given, you know, you know, a brain that has 12 petabytes of capacity. Every human being on the face of this earth has a brain that has the ability to have to, that can hold 12 petabytes. That's 300 movies played back to back 
which would take you years to watch. Our brains have the capacity to store all that information. So irregardless of color, race, diversity, blah, 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 we, every kid that comes through the door has the capability. It may be their environment, maybe this or maybe that. But I think if, if I could build a school where diversity was valued, music was valued, brain gyms were valued, and you have all of the standard tests and everything built around that or built inside of that well, and those kids are walking out being well-rounded, uh, to me, that would be my ideal school. Yeah, it'd be a place I'd send uh, my future kids. So I appreciate you sharing that. Well, Gerald, thank you so much for being a part of the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, of everything we talked about today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker listening to remember? Never stop learning. Never stop learning. And, and always have a mentor. You know, think about where you're at and where you want to go. Find people who have already been there and done that. Even if they're at the top of the field, they may have, you know, millions of dollars in the bank and, and so on and so forth. But what, what, what COVID has taught us is that everyone's a screen away. Everyone's a screen away. And so you can, and, and if you can't physically or virtually speak with them, you can buy their books, you can buy their programs, have mentors, have coaches, and, and, and because success leaves clues. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at betterleadersbetterschools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed.